and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by our deputy editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about some of the key stories affecting general practice that we've covered on the website. Coming up, we're talking about physicians' associates after the BMA GP committee in England voted in favour of a strongly worded motion that called for an immediate freeze on recruiting these roles in general practice. And we'll be looking at plans for regulating PAs by the GMC, which is also causing concern in the medical profession. We're also discussing the Royal College of GP's new definition of what a GP is. And we'll be looking ahead to the England Local Medical Committee conference at the end of this month and talking about some of the motions that are up for debate. Our good news story this week is about prescribing of DOAX in primary care and the impact this has had on stroke prevention. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. There's been a lot of discussion in recent months about the role of physicians' associates or PAs across the NHS, with many doctors raising concerns about the way these members of staff are being used in both primary and secondary care. You may remember on the podcast a few weeks ago, we talked about the BMA issuing a position statement opposing any further expansion of the role until several key concerns it had were addressed. But PAs have been back in the news this week, haven't they, Nick, after the BMA GP committee in England voted on a motion relating to their use in primary care? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the volume of concern from within general practice, from the BMA and other groups, including the RCGP and the Doctors Association UK in recent weeks around physician associates has has really been dialed up. And the latest development in all of this is that the BMA England GP committee voted through a motion last week setting out some safety concerns and calling for a string of measures to try and address these. So to run through the detail of the motion passed by the GP committee, the overarching point was to raise concerns about physician associates or physician assistants, as the BMA would like to see them renamed to make it a bit clearer that these are not doctors being used to substitute GPs in English general practice. The motion GP leaders voted for says that physician associates are neither a safe nor appropriate substitute for a GP. It might seem self-evident, but it's a strong statement to make that position clear. It calls for an immediate freeze on recruitment of PAs until safe regulatory processes and structures are in place. It spells out to GP registrars and GPs that they don't have to sign prescriptions or request investigations on behalf of physician associates. And it states that it's entirely inappropriate for GP registrars to be supervised or debriefed by PAs. And then the final point the committee agreed on is that GP registrars should not be regulated by the GMC, which is a point we've seen raised by other doctors' organisations. I mean, in terms of what BMA England GP committee chair, Dr. Katie Bramwell-Stainer, had to say about this, she made the point very clearly that the committee and general practice as a whole absolutely recognises that the profession now operates in multidisciplinary teams and that those teams are really valued. But the concern GPs have here is that there's a real risk of blurring the lines between healthcare professionals who are not doctors and who are not medically qualified and those who are. And Dr. Bramwell Stainer said it was critical just to preserve that distinction and that ultimately what's at stake is patient safety. So, This is a critical moment for the integration of new roles into the healthcare workforce. And and doctors' leaders are making it clear that as things stand, they're just not convinced that the way these staff are being used is safe in all cases and that more clarity, oversight and regulation is needed to guarantee that safety. 
It is important to mention here that there are lots of GPs and practices that have physicians associates in their team and and they really value the role that they play and and they probably are working in very safe ways. As I said at the start of this, we've run through some of the key concerns that the overall BMA, so this is not just the GP committee, this is the BMA as a whole, put out that position statement I mentioned earlier. And and there's a lot of concerns about the way PAs and anesthesia associates work in hospitals as well. But just briefly, can you explain what some of those concerns in that statement were in case people didn't hear that previous episode? There are a number of different concerns and some of those cover more sort of process issues around how these staff fit into the framework of healthcare provision. And some are around things like how they're paid and the language used to describe them and the implications of all of that for patient safety. So doctors are worried about supervision of physician associates from a couple of points of view. They're they're worried for one thing about the amount of workload involved in supervising physician associates. And they're also worried that there isn't enough clear guidance on how supervision should work, the level of supervision needed, and that as a result, there's a risk of dangerous variation in how they operate from one practice to another or from one hospital to another. Um, We we mentioned recently on the podcast the idea that the additional roles reimbursement scheme maybe should be flipped around so that instead of healthcare staff such as physician associates seeing undifferentiated patients as they currently are expected to do, perhaps GPs should always see patients first and then refer them on to those staff only if they think it's appropriate. So there are those sorts of questions about how they should be deployed from the pay point of view, the BMA has said clearly that it's, it's, it's wrong for newly qualified staff in associate roles to come into the NHS workforce on rates of pay higher than those for junior doctors, which is sometimes the case. And then obviously, as we've been discussing, one of the biggest issues is just around clarity in terms of how these staff are named. The BMA, as I mentioned, feels it would be better to call them physician assistant rather than associate to make clear that they're there to assist doctors but are not actually doctors themselves. And the BMA points out that this is the name used for the role in the US and that in the UK, we actually also use that terminology up until 2014. And in terms of what's at stake here, one of the cases that's really brought this to a head is a case in which a patient died after twice seeing a physician associate at a GP practice. That patient thought they'd seen a GP, but they hadn't. So just to step back a bit, all the noise and concern we're starting to see around physician associates is effectively fallout from significant changes made as as part of the five-year GP contract deal, which started in 2019 and which the profession is now in the final year of. Physician associates are one of the roles brought into general practice through the additional roles reimbursement scheme, which started as part of that five-year contract package. And the latest workforce figures suggest there are just under 800 of them working in general practice, and there are other medical associate roles in other parts of the health service. And for general practice, part of the idea of additional role staff was obviously to, to supplement the GP workforce at a time when numbers of GPs are in decline. And I think GPs have been concerned from the outset that this could become a sort of excuse for not delivering on promises to increase actual numbers of GPs. I mean, the government has promised repeatedly that it'll grow numbers of GPs. It promised in 2015 to add 5,000 GPs to the workforce. And then when it failed to do that, upgraded the promise to 6,000 extra GPs. But it's still not moving in the right direction on that. And even though there are more doctors training to become GPs than ever, 
the fully qualified GP workforce is still falling. So we, we currently have more than 2,000 fewer fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs than there were in 2015 in England. I think that persistent failure to deliver on GP numbers is maybe adding to concerns about growing use of physician associates. In terms of how they're regulated, as I mentioned earlier, plans for the GMC to take on regulation of PAs is causing quite a lot of concern among doctors too. I think the key point is that it risks confusion. If PAs get GMC numbers that look a bit like doctors' GMC numbers, will patients be more likely to think they are doctors when they aren't? And then there are other concerns. I I saw one doctor pointing out on social media that the GMC was set up by doctors to regulate doctors and that it's funded by fees that doctors pay. So should the GMC really be opening its door to regulate this group of healthcare staff who aren't doctors? Wouldn't they be better placed being regulated by a different organisation? I mean, the BMA, for example, says this really ought to fall to the Health and Care Professions Council instead. Despite all these concerns, the government seems to be ploughing ahead. So there are lots of issues wrapped up in this, and I'm pretty confident it's an issue we'll be um, coming back to again before too long. Yes. I mean, you mentioned the GMC regulation there, and this seems to be something that's really bothering a lot of doctors. I think everyone obviously agrees that physicians' associates need to be regulated. I mean, it's quite a worry that they're not actually regulated at the minute, to be honest. But many doctors are now questioning, you know, whether it should be the GMC that regulates them. So last week, we wrote about this as well. Last week, almost 3,000 doctors signed a letter written by the Doctors' Association UK or DA UK warning that the plans for PA regulation were unsafe and lacked the necessary safeguards. One of the things they worried about and one of the things they raised in that letter is is something you mentioned there, Nick, is about the registration number that PAs will be given when regulation goes ahead, which may sound a bit odd. It may sound like something minor for people to worry about. But arguably, you know, if PAs are given a GMC number that looks the same as the GMC number doctors have, then that is potentially confusing. So the, the letter calls for the GMC to make sure that those numbers are sufficiently different if and when regulation goes ahead. Interestingly, the Royal College of Radiologists has apparently also raised concerns with the GMC about that registration number for PAs. The DAUK also raises concerns about the lack of a clearly defined scope of practice for PAs and said that was alarming. And the letter says that the GMC should really be setting this scope of practice rather than it happening locally. And it raised concerns about whether PAs would be subject to the same stringent checks as doctors when they join the register. There there seems to be some worry among DAUK that that might be the case. For its part, the GMC has said that it's been working on regulation for PAs since 2019. When regulation does begin to join the register, PAs will have to show they have the knowledge and skills required by completing a qualification that's recognised by the GMC. They'll also need to show there are no outstanding concerns about their fitness to practice, including supplying employment references and history going back over the previous five years. I mean, in terms of that point about scope of practice, the GMC said on Twitter or or X, as we're supposed to call it now, that 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 will be up to royal colleges and other stakeholders to set that scope of practices. And the GMC says it'll be working with them on that in the same way that it does for for medical practice. The GMC has also said that regulation for PAs and anaesthesia associates is likely to go ahead from the end of 2024. And interestingly, the other thing it told us was that if the relevant legislation to enable this to happen is laid before Parliament before the end of this year, then the GMC says it will be consulting on the rules that will underpin how regulation works in the new year. So I think we can expect a lot more discussion and a lot more input from doctors into that consultation when that happens. 
So Nick, this is something else I wanted to talk to you about. This is on a slight tangent, but it is sort of related. The BMA's GP Trainee Committee also announced last week that it was changing its name to the GP Registrars Committee. Why have they done that? Yeah, that's right. It, it is actually quite closely related to the concerns we've talked about around how physician associates are named and making clear to patients what they actually are. Part of the motivation for the change is about recognising that doctors in GP training are actually already highly qualified and often experienced doctors. Uh, the committee's chair, Dr. Malinga Ratwata, said renaming it the GP Registrars Committee better reflects our roles as fully qualified medical doctors, many of whom will have several years of experience as doctors in general practice, as well as other specialties prior to entering postgraduate training. And he said that patients often perceive trainees as students. So if you call them trainees, people think that they're students. And it's misleading when it comes to these roles in medicine, even if you know a trainee might be what they are in other parts of the health service or in other roles. And he said that particularly in a health service in which new roles are being introduced rapidly, and this is a direct reference to medical associate roles that we're talking about, physician associates and others, it's really vital that patients have absolute clarity about the type of health professional they're consulting with from the point of view both of transparency and safety. So the GP Registrars Committee has actually put out a statement with the Junior Doctors Committee on Physician Associates. This is in parallel to the one by the BMA as a whole that we, we talked about earlier, warning about safety concerns around the speed at which these roles are being adopted in the health service as a whole. That statement is quite interesting. It basically says that it's essential that these roles are working under the supervision of a named consultant or GP, you know, and junior doctors and GP registrars shouldn't be prescribing medicines and request or requesting imaging on behalf of these roles. So very similar to, to some of the statements that were, were part of that motion that the GP committee voted on. You know, it's fairly obvious there's clearly going to be a lot more discussion about the use of physician associates in primary care. But as we mentioned earlier, a lot of practices and primary care networks do have PAs and really value these roles. Although an area where there has been some concern, as you've mentioned, Nick, is around supervision of PAs. And in fact, supervision of many other additional roles like paramedics, pharmacists, particularly those that may be seeing patients with undifferentiated conditions. And, and both concerns around, like you said, about whether GPs have sufficient time to do this and whether the guidance and frameworks are there to properly support this. I think I mentioned on the podcast last time we talked about this, the BMA has said, you know, it's planning on providing guidance to members on supervision responsibilities. But on our website this week, we've got some really useful information for any GPs who are supervising physicians associates from the Medical Defence Union, the MDU. This answers some key questions the MDU MDU has received from its members around supervising PAs and sets out where GPs stand in terms of the current guidance that is already in place from the GMC and others. So hopefully people will find that helpful and we'll put a link to that in the notes for this episode. Before we move on, just to let you know that MIMS Learning Live is taking place in Liverpool on Wednesday, the 29th of November. This free one-day event is organised by our colleagues on MIMS Learning. There'll be two clinical update streams providing CPD learning on topics including women's health, mental health, oncology, rheumatology and much more. You can register for your free place and find out more information, including the full programme, at mimslearninglive.com. Next up, what exactly is a GP? We may think we all know what a GP is and what a GP does, but the RCGP, the Royal College of GPs, has recently published a new definition of a GP, which was developed by the College Council after much discussion. Nick, you wrote about this this week. What exactly does this new definition say? 
The definition the college has published opens with a line saying that a GP is a doctor who is a consultant in general practice. Um, This was published around the time that the RCGP annual conference took place last month. Basically, it sets out for the first time how the college understands the role of a GP. As I said, it says that a GP is a consultant in general practice, an expert in providing continuous whole person medical care and managing the risk and complexity that goes with that. It also says GPs work in, connect with and lead multidisciplinary teams and that they provide evidence-informed personalised care in partnership with patients and work as an advocate for their patients and the population to optimise the care they provide. It also explains that um, that GPs can contribute to healthcare in many other ways beyond the GP surgery, and that's through roles in leadership, commissioning, education, research, out-of-hours work, and, and so on. You also spoke to College Honorary Secretary Dr Michael Mulholland about all of this. Why have the college done this and why have they done it now? So one of the motivations for the college to put this out now is that it felt there was a gap when its policy teams were talking to other organisations and trying to describe the role of a GP in the modern NHS. Dr Mulholland said there'd been some previous efforts to develop a definition of a GP and that definitions have been published by organisations in Europe and around the world but nothing that really captured British general practice as it is now. So that was part of it. And there's also an element of parity of esteem, that there are already plans for the GMC to merge its GP and specialist registers, although it's worth saying that those are moving quite slowly at the moment. But ultimately, he said that when a doctor completes GP training, they get a certificate of completion of training, just as a hospital doctor gets a a CCT when they complete specialty training. And ultimately, just as that hospital doctor is then considered a consultant, the point is that a GP should be too. And it's worth mentioning that LMCs also called for GPs to be rebranded as consultants earlier this year. So this isn't an RCGP only issue. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? One of the sessions I was at the RCGP annual conference a few weeks ago was Professor Camilla Hawthorne. And I think they have taken this definition really, really seriously. I mean, she was on stage in a session with all the other chairs and they said that really thought about every word that went into that statement and what it said about what a GP is doing now. So it's obviously well worth people having a look at that. And we'll put a link to the story we wrote about this on description for this episode. The England LMC's conference takes place on the 23rd and 24th of November, where local medical committees will debate a range of key issues affecting the profession and help steer policy for the BMA GP committee in the year ahead. And clearly there's plenty of issues to discuss. We know that there's going to be a new contract in April 2024, but as we've spoken about on the podcast before, this is unlikely to bring major changes and will probably only run for a year, given that the NHS only has a funding settlement agreed until March 2025. But it's clear LMCs and the BMA GP committee are thinking ahead about what needs to happen to the contract in future. Nick, what were some of the motions that caught your eye on the agenda relating to this? We've talked recently on the podcast about the future of the GP contract and how, as the current five-year agreement comes to an end, we might not see huge changes initially. But there are a good few motions put forward by LMCs that are calling for changes around contracts, both in terms of the types of contracts that should be available and around scrapping some elements of, uh, of existing contracts for practices. LMCs are going to debate a call to scrap APMS contracts. That's a, a type of time-limited deal uh, that can be held by companies as well as groups of GPs. 
And those contracts often run for five or 10 years, a bit like the sort of contracts for train companies, for example, taking out franchises on parts of the rail network in the UK. And LMCs will debate a call for future contracts for GP practices, all to be commissioned under permanent GMS contracts. Just to be clear, that's the more traditional type of GP contract that the vast majority of practices in the country um, operate under. They're also going to call for an end to the current practice that sometimes sees providers who take on APMS contracts, the time-limited ones, paid higher rates of funding under those deals than is offered to GMS providers. That's often seen as something that they have to do because of the fact that they're time limited, because otherwise people wouldn't want to take on a contract over a shorter period of time. We've written recently about some commissioners deciding not to commission services in future under those sorts of deals because they found that APMS contracts don't deliver the kind of stability that GMS offers. So in parts of the country, LMCs may be pushing an open door there in terms of negotiations with ICBs about switching to that kind of approach. And doctors leaders at the LMC's conference will also call for the pay for performance quaff framework to be scrapped. Also for all locally commissioned enhanced services to be scrapped as well. So the the proposal they're going to look at when it comes to enhanced services, local enhanced services, is for money currently spent on locally enhanced services, which are basically locally agreed bolt-ons to practice contracts to pay for services that not all practices currently deliver. So they're locally negotiated add-ons to the GP contract to be moved into core funding, into the, the global sum payments practices receive. So they'll discuss whether core funding should be increased so that all practices are funded to deliver services such as phlebotomy, spirometry and ECGs. And on another element of the contract, LMCs have already called for the uh, PCN-DES, the part of the contract that delivers funding linked to primary care networks to be scrapped. That's existing policy. They say that 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 funding ought to be moved into core funding for general practice. It's also policy that GPs should be balloted before any extension to that bit of the contract goes ahead. So the debate that's going to happen here is to debate future potential alternatives to the PCN DES, a kind of you know blue sky thinking exercise, what general practice wants to see from any future model of working at scale. Um, there's also a motion on safe working limits in general practice, saying that these should be considered a red line in contract negotiations and that the BMA England GP committee should agree an absolute minimum number of GPs required to meet the basic needs of a standard population size. We've actually written in the past about this, uh, the idea of uh, a limit of 1,800 patients per fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs as being a kind of safe limit. And we know that there are currently, based on that ratio, the general practice is, is currently caring for 13 million plus patients more than it can safely manage. We'll also hear some debates about recruitment and retention of GPs, contracts for salaried GPs, and a potential plan to split contracting for planned and unplanned care in general practice, which would obviously be a a really big shift, moving to two separate contract streams for those two elements of the work that general practice delivers. It's important to remember that all of these motions, these are debates that will um, shape BMA policy, but then the BMA has to go into negotiations with the government and agree to see if any of these things actually come into being in real life. But it's a really good bellwether of where the profession's at on some of these issues and what it would like to see. I mean, you mentioned that debate on working at scale. This is like a theme debate they're holding. And these theme debates, don't they don't always have a vote attached on a specific motion to them. 
but they're there really to get a sense of how people feel about a particular topic and what issues around that topic are most important. So at the end of that debate about working at scale and primary care networks, the LMC's representatives at the conference are going to be asked to vote on a scale of one to six on a number of statements, asking them what they think GPs in their areas feel about these issues. And these statements include whether their colleagues even want to work at scale in the future, You know whether they're prepared to share clinical and non-clinical staff, back office functions and estates with other practices, and also whether GPs in their area want to provide private services or tender for other NHS services through working at scale. So they're all potentially interesting votes, and it will definitely give us a sense of where LMCs see the value of working at scale, or in fact, whether they see there is any value of working at scale. There's a a motion, another one that's worth mentioning, given what we were talking about earlier on the additional roles reimbursement scheme. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given what we were talking about earlier, the motion on the ARRS is relating to supervision of staff. And it's it's quite strongly worded. It says that ARRS staff have not been nationally supported to develop adequate competence within primary care and says that everyone employed under the scheme should be supervised in a similar way to GP registrars for three years from commencing their role, which would obviously be a huge shift if that's something that, that ever ended up happening. There's also calls for ARRS staff and supervisors to be properly funded for protected time for supervision and learning, which is something we've heard GPs call for before. And I think it's something certainly the conference will really get behind that. Interestingly, we talked earlier about concerns about a lack of guidance and support available on supervision, but this motion also says that the amount of supervision required should be guided by the individual rather than being a blanket approach. So I think what people behind the motion are saying there is that while perhaps more guidance is needed on supervision, they don't want to be too prescriptive about it. For example, you know, setting guidance on how much time it should take because that would be just too difficult to work. There's also this section in the conference on Friday morning that's looking at some more radical and perhaps longer term changes. And these could be kind of things, I guess, the BMA are thinking about addressing in longer term negotiations about where the contract goes. So this is where representatives will be getting into facilitated groups to talk about some of these key issues. What are they looking at there, Nick? I think the standout elements of this are around discussing a fair formula for distributing GP funding. Uh, and around whether and how continuity of care could be incentivized in in general practice. Um, so on, on the funding formula, we know that the Car Hill formula that weights payments per patient that GP practices receive doesn't recognize deprivation and the impact that has on GP workload in, in the way that it should. Um, GP practices serving the most deprived communities tend to have a larger number of patients per GP. And one statistic we've published is that practices in deprived areas care for 10% more patients with 7% less funding. The formula currently is weighted most heavily on the age and sex of patients in a practice's population. And that means that in deprived areas where patients tend to have higher levels of chronic illness at an earlier age, the formula doesn't deliver the funding practices need to care for the patient population that they serve. So part of the debate will be to warn that the current formula isn't fit for purpose and to discuss an alternative that reflects patient demographics, deprivation and health-seeking behaviour on an individual practice level. Just as as a caveat here, this isn't a new topic of debate for general practice. It's been running for a long while. Obviously, the, the Car Hill formula has been in operation since 2004, when the, the so-called new GMS contract was first introduced. And over that period, for at least a decade, maybe more, there have been discussions about making the way it distributes funding 
fairer and in particular around this issue of getting it to reflect deprivation and the impact that that has on GP workload. Another standout debate, I think, is around how continuity measures could be included in a new contract. Um, That's particularly interesting because the Labour Party, which I guess might well be the next party in government, has discussed incentivising practices that deliver continuity of care and effectively penalising those that don't. And I think this is interesting in light of the previous debate about funding too, because there could be a risk that in penalising practices that don't offer continuity, that you penalise practices that are simply underfunded. And so some of the funding inequality issues surely need to be tackled first. So I mean, in this sort of scenario, you can't do one without sorting the other first, it looks like to me. Yeah, so it certainly looks like there's quite a lot of interesting things which will be up for discussion. I will be actually recording the next news podcast just before that conference takes place, which, as I said, is on the 23rd and 24th of November. So do keep an eye on gponline.com on those dates for all the latest news from those debates we've been talking about. We've just got time for our good news story before we go. And this week, it's about prescribing of direct oral anticoagulants or DOACs. DOACs are medicines that can prevent strokes by preventing blood clots in patients with atrial fibrillation. There's been a big push in the past couple of years to boost prescribing of DOACs in patients with AF and to make sure everyone who could benefit from them has them prescribed. In fact, this was something that was added to the Quality and Outcomes Framework, or the QOF, this year. Last week, NHS England said the rapid expansion of DOAC prescribing has prevented an estimated 17,000 strokes and saved around 4,000 lives. Around 460,000 extra people have begun taking the blood thinning medication since January 2022, with more than 24 million prescriptions issued to patients over that period. And obviously, most of this prescribing will have been happening in general practice. So it really is a real success story. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks to Nick and thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to Talking General Practice on all the usual podcast platforms and do think about giving us a rating or a review. I'll be back next week when I'm talking to Dr. Rebecca Leon and Dr. Sarah Taylor from Gateway C and the GP's Talk Cancer podcast about early cancer diagnosis. So please do join me then. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting general practice at gponline.com.